to the MISEM podcast, in which we talk to MISEM members about their current research. I'm Cohen Culver, and today it is my pleasure to host Mikhaila Antonin Malinkova. Mikhaila is Assistant Professor of Medieval History at Palatsky University, Olomouc in the Czech Republic. She teaches and publishes on urban history, gender history, and family history. She has authored many articles and several book chapters, as well as co-edited books exploring disputes over honor, medieval identity, and the application of the prism of gender in Czech historiography. Her latest project, she focuses on the structure and functioning of late medieval urban families in Moravian towns. When she's not teaching or research, she enjoys yoga, and the books of Tom Robbins, the great American writer of serious comedy. Our discussion today will focus on her recent and most interesting chapter, Female Litigants in Secular and Ecclesiastical Courts in Lands of Bohemian Crown, 13 to 1500. It's published in the book, Litigating Women, Gender and Justice in Europe, 1300 to 1800, edited by Teresa Phipps and Deborah Youngs, published by Routledge 2022. Michaela, welcome to the MISEM podcast. Karen, thank you so much for your very kind introduction and thank you very much for your invitation. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Now, reading the chapter in uh, The Female Litigants, which I found absolutely fascinating, you describe a case that was tried before the ecclesiastical court of the vicars general of the Prague Archdiocese in April 1424. In this case, Barbara, daughter of one Matthias, made a request for the recognition of her marriage to Laurentius, son of Hannus, with whom she claimed to have exchanged a vow of marriage. Laurentius was released from Barbara's claim, however, because she was unable to provide witnesses to the claim marriage vows. This struck me as very interesting. And I wondered, was this apparently unwitnessed event? Was it a typical marriage contract of the period? Did this kind of contract affect all levels of society or only one? What sort of ceremony was normally enacted to perform or confirm marriage? And as I got married in a church many years ago, when did the church become involved and eventually dominate proceedings? Thank you, Karen, for your question. Uh, in many ways, this was a typical case because striving for recognition of alleged marriage was the most common reason that brought women and men to the ecclesiastical court in marital disputes. Uh, and it holds true not only for the Bohemian lands in the first half of the 15th century, but generally for the church courts all over Europe. This situation resulted from the fact that even long after the Fourth Council of Lateran, that in 1215 included marriage among the sacraments of the church, and establish the conditions for its formation and termination, continued to be contracted on a secular and informal basis, meaning 
without the presence of the priest and often without any witnesses. It was only after the Council of Trent when the presence of the priest uh, became to be a necessary condition for a valid marriage. Until then, it was, of course, recommended, but it was not necessary for a marriage to be recognized. Of course, the private nature of the exchange of marriage vows opened the way for later speculations that brought both male and female litigants uh, in front of the church courts. The representation of men and women was quite equal in the cases of alleged marriage, at, re at least in the research sample that I analyzed. And this seems as a kind of exception within the European context. Uh, so it is something that we might touch later during the interview, if you wish. The sources that are being used to research marital disputes in the Czech lands are the judicial act books of the Vicar's General's Court. You asked about the social environment or social groups that were involved in these disputes. It is a well-known fact that the higher the social class, the more formalized was the arranging and actual solemnization of marriages. It is quite significant that the cases heard in the Vicar General's Court involved people from urban and rural backgrounds, meaning no nobility included. So if the marriage was made not necessarily with a priest present, but it was urban and rural people, what kind of ceremonies would they have enacted to prove and declare and celebrate their marriage. The descriptions or records about the marital disputes tend to be quite detailed as for the uh, character of the vows, because it was necessary for the, for the court to, to hear the proper words that were said to be able to judge if the marriage was contracted in the right way. So we sometimes got these incredible details about the procedure in which the marriage was contracted. And based on the records, we can say that the most typical parts of the ritual were probably joining of hands and uh, exchange of gifts, because these are features that are most frequently mentioned by the litigants as evidence supporting the existence of marriage. Otherwise, from other sources, we would be hardly ever informed about the character or actual procedure uh, in which the marriage was contracted. So we can be really grateful to this type of sources. Exchange of gifts. What kind of gifts were exchanged? Yeah, it, it was very diverse, we can say. Uh, sometimes it, it were rings, sometimes it were even financial sums that were taken as gifts, sometimes it were pieces of cloth, sometimes it were pieces of clothing, and sometimes it were some valuable pieces of uh, cutlery, for instance, knives. I remember that I've read a um, mention of Cypress knives. So all these type of goods could serve as a, as a gift during the, the marriage contract. And were the gifts made from the man to the woman, the woman to the man, 
or both? Uh, from both. This is quite interesting. I, I did not find any indications that the gifts would be typical only for uh, wives or only for husbands. It seems that it was a kind of mutual exchange of gifts. Um, going back to the, the court cases that you studied, in the 15th century Bohemia, ecclesiastical and secular municipal courts, which judicial system was generally used for disputes over marriage contracts? And which system was favoured when a marriage dispute involved inheritance, property, business? In other words, money. <laughs> Marriage as an institution, uh, matters connected with the exchange of vows as well as marital cohabitation as such, and eventually dissolution of marriage, were nominally within the sphere of ecclesiastical law. The municipal law generally addresses the institution of marriage primarily with regard to its legitimacy, focusing exactly on the property and personal rights of spouses. The Book of Law of the town of Brno from mid-14th century that I analysed in this regard being no exception. We can say that both legal systems, municipal as well as ecclesiastical, were consistent regarding the main requirements, which were the minimum for the recognition of a valid marriage. And that was, on one hand, a free consent of both parties. Although we know that in practice, the principle of free consent was sometimes undermined by family pressure. Perhaps we will come to this later as well. And uh, on the other hand, both systems were also in accordance in terms of their negative attitude towards so-called matrimonium clandestinum, meaning secret marriages, no matter if the marriage was contracted in a secular way or in facie ecclesia. It had to be a public act in order to prevent potential discord and uncertainty. For municipal law, the main reason for this being especially the control of property and inheritance rights that were guaranteed by the municipal law to the heirs and to the spouse. So we can perhaps say that the point of view applied by the municipal court was uh, more practical while the ecclesiastical courts focused on the marriage uh, as an institution and as a sacrament. When we have the position of a claimed pre-marriage contract, particularly where there's a loss of virginity or there are children involved and property rights, what punishments or compensations could either legal system offer? And how were these punishments, compensations enforced? Because it seems to me it's very, very difficult to enforce anything. Uh, yes, you are very right. Perhaps we can start by saying that generally the ecclesiastical courts show rather flexible attitude and a great piece of understanding when dealing with marital issues. For example, if a woman confirmed in court that defloration had occurred, but the man refused to marry her, the court tried to remedy the situation by ordering the man to pay the financial compensation. We can 
presume that this fine may have served as a dowry for the woman to enter into a legal marriage with another partner and help her in her difficult situation. If the woman was pregnant or even with a child, ecclesiastical court often demands alimony for rising up a child, and in certain cases recorded in judicial act books, it could even entrust the custody of the child to the father after a certain period of time. So all these, these types of decision of the court really reflect, in my view, certain flexibility and certain temptation uh, of the court to secure the social position of a woman and of a child or of children. Speaking about the compensations that can be enforced, we can say that the ecclesiastical court disposed in all cases by the threat of excommunication that was used in certain cases. So this could be the way how to make people to fulfill their deeds from the point of, of the church legislation. And for the municipal courts? Sure. There were several ways uh, how they could punish the accusated parties. Of course, there were fines that could be applied. Of course, there were some um, punishments that were meant to humiliate, in a way, the person by exposing the person to the common shame of the community, of the urban community. These crimes were not the most severe ones that would be punished by death, for instance, or by some other punishment. But still, there were various ways how the municipal court could make people <laughs> do whatever was asked from them. <laughs> yes. On the other hand, excommunication is probably a lot cheaper. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> and efficient. Another point that struck me while reading your chapter was that a wife was legally subordinate to her husband, and he was described as the lord and administrator of the woman's body as well as her property. So what happened to the property when a woman got married? Did it automatically become the husband's? Did she keep any of it? And what happens if the marriage was dissolved? Yes, um, officially, the administration of the community property within the marriage was in the hands of a husband. And um, as you have indicated, guardianship over his wife and her property is emphasized in the contemporary municipal legal sources, for instance, uh, in those of Brno provenance that I've analyzed. However, if they seriously threatened the prosperity of the family, there existed legal ways for a wife to stop him doing that and even substitute him as an administrator of the family property. Typically, this happened if the husband was physically or mentally ill. A similar procedure, however, could be applied in cases where the husband was missing out of town uh, for a long period of time, which paralyzed the economic options for the family. And it is quite clear that in this respect, the urban authorities favored economic factors over rigid gender restrictions. However, there existed 
specifically defined legal ways how a wife could administer her own property even if the husband was healthy in all respects. These ways included prenuptial agreement, bequest and dower. Generally, dower was protected by law within the community property. It should serve as a financial reserve for the wife in case the husband died. But if the couple explicitly agreed on this, in Brno municipal law, wives could get access to the dower even during the husband's lifetime. Uh, the other ways that wife could get a property that was explicitly excluded from the power of her husband were the property that she received as a bequest, even during her husband's lifetime. And uh, also she could dispose of a property if this was explicitly stated in the prenuptial agreement. Gosh, and I thought prenuptial contracts were only for Hollywood superstars and footballers. <laughs> <laughs> well, this instrument was, was quite common and it was quite common, especially in case of the second or even third marriages, when a widow entered into the new marriage with certain property and with minor children. It proved to be quite practical to secure their rights and to secure the property before entering into a new marriage. So it was not so rare as we might expect, especially for the wealthy layers of uh, urban society. So in some ways, things haven't changed that much. That's for sure. <laughs> You've said that marriage in the Bohemian lands at this period was seen as a contract of equal partners between the man and the woman and both partners but particularly the woman, should have freedom of choice. Uh, there were obviously times when there was a lot of pressure brought on one party or the other to enter a marriage they didn't want. I was just wondering what tactics were used to push and how did the partners push back against this kind of pressure to marry someone they didn't want? This is a very interesting question. Some sources, uh, testaments in particular, provide evidence about social and economic constraints used by families to secure their influence over their children's marriage choices. Uh, we are informed about the cases when parents conditioned the bequest of a property to a child by the fact that the child will marry only a person that was chosen by parents or by guardians, which, as you can see, is a really strong economic pressure that probably was very efficient in practice. So uh, we are quite well informed about the strategies of, of families to create a pressure. We are hardly ever informed about the strategies of the lovers to avoid this pressure. And in practice, these uh, strategies to avoid pressure could be diverse, and we can only guess at them based on the surviving sources than being able to prove them by clear evidence. Um, as one example, I'd like to cite a case recorded in judicial act books. When a case was brought to the court by the alleged husband, 
probably in consultation with the alleged wife, in order to prove that the new marriage of the wife, of his beloved, was forced by the wife's stepmother. And actually, in this case, the church court recognized the validity of the first marriage, meaning the marriage that they both wanted. Uh, and they said that the second marriage that was evidently forced by the stepmother was unvalid. So in this case, the strategy was successful. But it is really, um, it, it is really hard to find more such cases. One is reminded of the story of Romeo and Juliet. That's what I had in my mind when I was analysing the case. But if you've got a couple married and then wishing or pushing or being pushed into marrying someone else, was there much bigamy? Now, I'll explain. I come from a small island and it was always said that sailors had a wife in every port. So did merchants have a wife in every town? Was there much bigamy? <laughs> well, uh, we cannot be sure how common was bigamy in practice, but based on analysis of bigamy cases that were heard in European ecclesiastical courts, we can say that it was not as rare as we might perhaps expect uh, the details of uh, records of bigamy cases show that just as informal entry into marriage was still common at the end of the Middle Ages, uh, the informal separation of marriage was also quite common. Uh, these sources also suggest a considerable degree of flexibility in medieval marriages. This is also something that is quite interesting. The two partners or one of them, sometimes choose to terminate a dysfunctional marriage by leaving for another city, where they sometimes entered into a new marriage. In English, the apt term self-divorce is being used for this kind of marriage termination. And uh, we can assume that the cases tried before the ecclesiastical courts, uh, I mean the cases of bigamy, represent only the tip of the iceberg. So perhaps this practice was um, not as uncommon as we might think. God, can you imagine two husbands? Oh, <laughs> I think one husband is enough. <laughs> <laughs> but um, your comments has just raised the issue that obviously divorce was possible in 15th century Bohemia. Generally, was it self-divorce? How was it managed? And what reasons were div for divorce were accepted, acceptable to the society? What barriers were put into place? What happened to the children? After the Fourth uh, Council of Lateran, the conditions introduced for the termination of marriage in Europe became somehow stricter. In medieval practice, this could be either termination through annulment or a separation from table and bed. And only the annulment enabled people to enter into a new marriage. Uh, the grounds for annulment of a marriage were set out quite clearly by the church. Most often the reason being the blood or spiritual relation between the spouses, 
Uh, among other reasons, we can mention a pre-contract of marriage with another marital partner, a forced consent to marriage or impotence. The pre-contract, uh, impotence uh, and uh, illegitimate degree of uh, kinship were the reasons that are to be found also in the sources that I analyzed for the Bohemian lands. Legal uh, separation, on the other hand, uh, I mean, the separation from uh, table and bed could be granted on the grounds of adultery, heresy or cruelty and allowed the couple to live apart. However, neither could remarry uh, during the other's uh, lifetime. The analyzed sources suggest that annulment was not so common. Uh, the legal separation caused by violent behavior on the part of the husband was somehow more common and it was discussed explicitly in some cases, but both practices were quite rare in the analyzed uh, source sample. As for the consequences of termination of a marriage, we can again quote the municipal law of medieval Brno. It states that if a wife was separated from her husband by the church court, she could not be denied the right to her dowry. It resembles the situation when a husband died only in, this, in the case of uh, separation, of course, the wife was not allowed to enter into a new marriage. It is quite clear that the municipal law explicitly incorporated the verdicts of the ecclesiastical court and uh, acknowledged its jurisdiction on questions relating validity of marriage and separation of marriage. So in these basic parameters, both legal systems had to work in accordance. Otherwise, the whole pattern would, uh, would be destroyed, of course. Michaela, you've obviously spent an awfully long time reading fairly old court documents about marriages. Have you got a favourite case? <laughs> well, mm, generally... Each case that is detailed and that enables us to see glimpses of day-to-day -day life are my favorite. I very much like certain type of cases that uh, have been discussed before the ecclesiastical courts that are depicting a situation when female litigants were accused of alleged marriages and they argue by the fact that they gave their consent with marriage only uh, as a sign of friendship or as a joke, right? So these are the cases that can show us that certain kind of flirters behavior was quite common among the young people in medieval period as much as they are common in these days. I remember one case when a girl was carrying a wood and she met a boy and he offered her help with the wood. Uh, and she said that she would be pleased, but she has nothing to pay him with for, her, for his help except of herself. And he said that he will be happy to have her. And a few years later, 
she wanted to enter into a marriage and this boy who helped her with the wood said before the ecclesiastical court that he thought that they were already married. And in this case, she uh, opposed him by saying that these words she said only in joke. And the ecclesiastical court recognized this evidence from her side. So she was not forced to marry him legally. But I think that this type of case is kind of amusing and it really shows us something that we hardly ever capture from other type of sources. Yes, it shows the humanity. Exactly, exactly. I love it. (laughs) With all these cases, and obviously women were bringing cases and your data shows as frequently as men, what does this tell us about the level of agency of women and their equality? Also thinking that litigation today is extremely expensive. I assume it was then as well. Yes, I think there are, these sources are great to study the female agency precisely. Uh, in general, church courts were more permissive than urban courts in providing space for female voices, regardless of their marital status. In municipal courts, only widows who administered their own estates could act relatively freely. Wives were somehow restricted and uh, girls as well by the guardianship of their husbands or by their fathers. For women and uh, particularly mothers living in semi-formal relationships, a bringing uh, of a case to court could provide a useful strategy to have their relationships formalized and uh, the legal and social status of them and their children secured. And in this sense, the ecclesiastical proceedings were very favorable to women. Although it was necessary to pay a certain fine, I don't think it was uh, so high because otherwise we would not be able to find their ordinary people. Also, For female litigants who wanted to refuse the claims of unwanted suitors, the church court was a popular or even a necessary place if they wanted to marry according to their will and did not want to face uh, future challenges to the validity of their marriages. So in all these cases, ecclesiastical courts were... uh, recognized by medieval women as very useful forum to express their needs and to receive certain kind of satisfaction that was needed. You mentioned it was useful for ordinary people. Okay, we accept it wasn't the nobility, but was it mostly merchants, tradesmen, middle class, um, or was it also the country folk, the field workers? It were mostly um, craftsmen, merchants, but there are certain cases that were tried, uh, that were brought to court by people that we could label as poor people. For example, a man that was living in a hospital that sued his ex-wife for bigamy. So it can be stated that these courts were not only more permissive 
towards women, but perhaps also towards the people from lower strata of uh, medieval society. Yeah, so I remember reading about that case in your chapter, the man who was in hospital and sued his wife for bigamy. And really all he wanted was to have the funds to be able to stay alive. Exactly. This is precisely the case. And what's really interesting about this case is the fact that the first husband, the one that lived in a hospital, probably knew about the new marriage of his original wife for a long time. But only when he uh, found himself in a very fragile and vulnerable situation, he decided to take this case into the court. So in this specific case, it was clearly his strategy to survive, as you said, which makes this particular case very interesting. Yes, it was a very interesting case. Michaela, as we're drawing to the end of the interview, I want to just put one final question to you, and it's going away from litigating women, because you've also written about the historiography in the Czech Republic. And you say that the study of women's history, or even researching history through the lens of gender, is quite a recent change within the Czech lands. And I, I suspect within most of the Central and Eastern Europe. Can you explain more about why this might be? And doesn't it give you, as a historian of gender history and women's history, doesn't it give you the most wonderful opportunities? Um, well, I, I believe that the current situation in Czech medieval studies, uh, not only Czech, but uh, Central European medieval studies, is the result of a combination of various factors. First of all, the Czech Republic before the Velvet Revolution of 1989 belonged to the countries of the so-called Eastern Bloc. And um, as such, it was mostly avoided by the second wave feminism and the turbulent developments in the field of women's history and later by gender history. Czech women's and gender history cannot build upon a systematic research tradition and lacks a long-term and focused institutional background, which is, of course, always very important to develop any kind of research. The situation is, in my view, also connected to other factors that are connected uh, to perhaps questions of mentality or attitude. More concretely, it's connected to the fact that for the Czech scholarly milieu, it's typical a certain level of distrust in theory in favor of facts. Also, it needs to be stated that feminism and all that is associated with it is still often perceived as something rather negative, specifically by the older generation of scholars. Although I do not want to say that this is something we could generalize, of course. And um, in this sense, we can perhaps speak uh, of some type of uh, scientific conservatism. And of course, this attitude can be found in other countries of Europe and in countries that had nothing to do with the communist experience in relation to the so-called 
gender backlash when things that are connected to research on gender or, or gender issues or social gender issues in general are labeled as gender ideology. So I think this situation is rather result of uh, complex uh, factors. And as for the second part of your question, yes, I would like to, if I may, I would like to use this interview to promote the potential that I believe gender history and women's history still holds for young researchers. And I will also like to make this appeal to all colleagues, medievalists, because I believe that gender perspective can only enrich our research in, in many ways. So the floor is open for everybody. And I'm sure that in the future, it will bring fantastic results that will enrich the field of, of medieval studies as such. Michaela, thank you very much indeed. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. And look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you very much, Karen, for the invitation once more. And I hope we will have the opportunity to speak in person someday. Goodbye. Thank you. Today, I have been talking to Mikhaila Antonin Malinikova about her ongoing research into marriage and litigation in the Bohemian lands of the 15th century. I hope you found it as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Please do look out for the next MISEM podcast in which members talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you think other members would find interesting, please do contact me through the MISEM board or website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISEM podcast. Goodbye until the next time.